Welcome to the Myatt & Co podcast, Listen In. Here, Mary and colleagues talk to interesting people about interesting stuff going on in schools. We hope you enjoy it. Hello there, I'm Mary Myatt and um, in this series I'm in conversation with AJ Smith. So thank you for joining us, AJ. And um We've we've covered um, some of your thoughts on uh, primary and secondary and secondary to primary uh, transition. And in this session, um, you're going to unpack uh, some of your thinking around the curriculum um, in in primary. So uh, we'll just go through some of these bullets uh, one by one. So when you're talking about macrocosm as opposed to microcosm and how they're inherently linked, can you elaborate on that? Yeah, I think this is something that I uh, looked at when I was back doing my degree and I wrote some of my dissertation about this. The idea that that everything that we do is deeply linked to, you know, the, the, the whole world and the whole universe and all of existence. You know, we we all exist within within the macrocosm, but everything we do is a microcosm. And that's all very abstract. But actually, when you think about the curriculum, I think there is the microcosm that goes as small as the single worksheet that we hand out, the the reading choices that we make, the the interventions that we take, the the language that we use in the classroom. But that is inherently linked to the macrocosm, which is ultimately the curriculum culture within, I suppose, our country, but within the school in particular. And the care and the thought that goes into the microcosm is reflected by the care and thought that goes into the macrocosm. So obviously macro being the larger and micro being the smaller. So an example of that would be a school where the the expectation was that teachers would take on huge amount of the planning workload on a, and I think we'll talk about this in a bit, but in a sort of ad hoc fashion, uh, lesson to lesson. And then that is reflected in the quality of what happens in the classroom, not just because of the constraints that are put on that teacher, which are completely unfair by by leadership, but also because of the the, the feeling that there wasn't that much care and planning gone into the, the dissemination of the curriculum. So when I am tasked with with planning and teaching this, that and the other, I think it's you know acceptable to cut corners, not in a nasty way, but understandable to cut corners, to go and look for things here and there and, and then just sort of slap them on to what you're doing um so yeah when you have i mean it's obvious isn't it that what happens in the larger affects the smaller but i I just think the link is is really significant um and that's something for leadership to think about is what kind of macrocosmic macrocosmic wow what a word what kind of um, macrocosmic uh impact are you having when you are having conversations about curriculum talking about how your school deals with curriculum and resourcing your curriculum as well i know we'll talk about that Yes, uh, this is so important. And I think it uh, links back to the idea that, you know, the development of the curriculum is not an individual endeavour overall. So we've got the responsibility to know what we're going to be teaching and you know to be absolutely prepped for that. But the, what's sitting behind that um, needs to be a corporate endeavour, I think, enabled by and the systems enabled as well as the culture uh, by senior leaders so that people are not floating around on their own trying to do this. Um, and we'll pick up a bit 
an example of that in a moment. Mm. But I think many schools have got their head around that in terms of pastoral, more so in primary, that, that pastoral is a team effort, that there are people who have specialisms and expertise in the in the pastoral and the SEND world, and that, that therefore the class teacher wouldn't be expected to do X, Y, and Z, and that there would be a huge support mechanism for them. And I, th- I find I think that's successful in many primary schools, more so than in secondary schools, that the pastoral level, the behaviour level, the support level, the SEND support is there. But the curriculum side of that is less strong. I think that that leads on to this this next point about expertise. Yeah. So are you happy to develop that? Yeah, of course. So expertise coming through the curriculum. I'm not an expert in maths, science, English, well-being, PE almost anything that I teach that isn't RE and even that I don't claim to be a great expert in. However, the, 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 the work that is planned in our school is planned by people who do have that expertise. And we're lucky enough being a large uh, two-form entry school to have a large teaching staff where there is a, a wide range of expertise. Obviously, it's not going to be the case for every school. So I think that there perhaps has been a taboo over using external resources and the expectation being that many that 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 somehow saying to your teachers you know you need to go and plan 12 lessons on the romans even though your degree was in was in art or or maths uh, is somehow superior to saying here are 12 lessons on the romans uh, that we've sourced for you and, and go and teach these and there's this is again i was skipping ahead slightly i guess this is the tension between freedom and prescription and I actually think there's a great freedom in the prescription I think that teachers when they're given high quality well-researched resources whether they are made internally by other members of staff who are given time to develop the curriculum across several year groups which is the position I'm very fortunate to find myself in or whether they are external then I think that's great one of the problems I have I'm not I don't think that twinkle is a swear word some people refuse to use that site and you know uh, that it's got a bad reputation the problem that i have with twinkle is that it is um on the microcosm scale a lot of what people download is one lesson or it's it's um, a short scheme of work or it's one worksheet or it's a, a stopgap because uh, i need a crossword because i don't i don't have anything else to teach in this time um but i think it gives a bad name to the idea of using external resources because there are so many high quality external resources the the reach curriculum from from feltham is an example of that um and i've looked at other curriculums that have come from america and i've utilized parts of that in my own curriculum work and i i think that there's a lot more to be said and it doesn't have to be you know bringing in curriculum consultants and bringing and paying them shed loads of money but if you're going to be paying to do so much photocopying and printing and, and whatnot then it's worth thinking about how that money and time and resource can be best spent and where the expertise lies and how you can bring that through. Yes, I agree with you. And I think this is about being very intentional about what we're doing, what we're prepping and where we're getting our resources from. Um, And I think, you know, for me, the big thing is quality assurance. Mm. Uh, Is what's landing on children's desks of a sufficiently high standard rather than just something to fill the gaps and um, one of of the issues I have about bought in schemes beyond the quality assurance is that then sometimes or quite often no time is invested in terms of working through the rationale for those schemes even if they're high quality 
Yeah, that's um, very true. I think that then it's an issue because actually you do need you need a certain level, you need a certain training and a certain mindset to t- teach something that's been bought in. Uh, and if schools aren't providing that, then there's no point in bringing in that resourcing. Mm-hmm. If you're teaching something uh, that is is not something you've created yourself, it's quite a different skill set. But it's not it's not worse because you haven't created it yourself. It's just that you need some specific training um, in in how to implement those curricula. Mm. Um, but to go back to the quality assurance, um, so where my thinking is at the moment is that if schemes are being bought in because they are of high quality, how do I know if they're of high quality? Well, I look to the schools that are doing fabulous work and getting fabulous results in the biggest sense for their children. So, for instance, um, St. Matthew's Research School in Birmingham, you know, if they if they have bought something in, that due diligence will have been done around that rather than just something off the shelf to sort of uh, plug a gap. Um, but, yes, and I think, uh, too, uh, what, what needs slight unpacking is the idea that because some is poor, quality it means that therefore we can't use anything that is external therefore I've got to create everything from scratch every night which is complete nonsense and so it's about teasing out the language of what we mean here Um, and so you know not all worksheets are bad Uh, booklets can be fantastic Um, but it's it's this purpose and quality I think that's sitting behind them that is really really important the other thing I'd like to say in terms of expertise coming um, through the curriculum I think really well designed curriculum materials uh, are a form of professional development Um, and I know when I've um, worked on and also used materials and trialed them um, when I was still in school working with uh, local authority curriculum um, developers is that my own knowledge and understanding improved and increased. Um, whereas I'm not likely to get that if I've just pulled something down as an ad hoc thing. So it's about, uh, you know, the, the wider impact that a high quality curriculum can have. Um, so we've talked a bit about the tension between freedom and prescription, but I think there's probably a bit more to say in terms of, um, you know, just the thinking that your school has uh, done on this uh, in terms of drawing on the experts in the field. Um, and then the materials that have come from that. Yeah, absolutely. I think, as I say, as I said earlier, there's a real freedom in prescription. It frees you from Facebook groups at 11.30 in the evening saying, ah, I have to teach uh, this book next week. Anyone got any ideas on, on some fun resources or fun ideas that I could use? And then having to sort of sift through those and sort and find what you want. So there's a definite freedom in knowing that, for example, every at the beginning of every half term, I will go into my classroom and I'll find six stacks. Uh, I'll find a geography booklet. I'll find the maths workbooks. I'll find the wellbeing workbooks, science, RE, all pre-planned. I know I can go on the shared drive and I can find those PowerPoints. But there's also the freedom in the fact that, and, and this is one of the things that having come from working in finance and working in retail, um, that really shocked me about teaching is how I don't know. I never know quite how to say this in a way that doesn't make it sound like I just sort of go mad in the classroom, but how little supervision there is day to day in, in your, in your classroom as a teacher. So if you have a set piece of work and you have a fantastic anecdote that you want to tell about, you know, when, uh, for example, we were talking about the Berlin wall the other day and my, my best friend's dad happened to be on a school trip in Berlin on the, the day the Berlin wall fell and was with, 
30 year 11 students from from a high school in Great Yarmouth and and took home a piece of the Berlin Wall with him on his ferry journey back to and I I just thought you know well I can tell this fun anecdote and as long as I'm not spending an hour telling it or, or even more than a couple of minutes so we have a lot of freedom in our classrooms whether or not we're teaching from prescriptive um schemes of work or not I um, am currently planning a scheme of work on Muhammad and on uh, the idea of Allah in Islam, but I know that there are teachers who will teach that who are practicing Muslims themselves, who have a much greater and deeper knowledge of Islamic theology and Islamic storytelling than I do. And so I'm planning it fully in the expectation that if I went to observe one of those lessons, I wouldn't be surprised if they didn't use the PowerPoint slides. So if they didn't, they didn't, you know, the, the, the structure of the lesson is there. What they need to have taught by the end of the lesson is clear on the the planning document, but utilize that expertise and that joy of knowledge and the the the. I think some people think that if you give teachers a booklet, they turn into a robot, and that's never been my experience. I've never seen that happen, and uh, I think it's quite the opposite. Teachers go from being stressed out, trying to be the expert in the room, trying to perfect everything, to not. And then you mentioned as well talking about design. Well, I think. We're really fortunate in our school to have um, a, a graphic designer who who's trained to become a teacher, and that's been absolutely wonderful. It means that everything in our school looks tremendous. Um, and we, so this is the maths textbook that we use, which is an externally bought in, um, and I absolutely love it. It's maths, no problem, Singapore maths. And this is such a pleasure to work with. It's so nicely designed. Uh, the lessons are really well thought out. The booklets are really well thought out. The work, the mark scheme, the assessment scheme, it all comes with it. So I love that. And I love the way that that looks. And then I just received yesterday our new year six booklet on, on Russia that uh, Tom, our, our graphic designer, has done an absolutely spectacular job. And I mean, when you go into a classroom to teach something and it, it looks like that, you feel so much more confident teaching it you feel so much more pride in teaching it uh the thought that's gone into it uh the fact that it's printed in a nice high quality booklet feels amazing as well and uh, i guess you know not every school is able to do something like that but these resources this kind of resource is available for most primary that's one of the benefits of primary is the, the existence of national curricula in everything but re but you know the fact that they're there allows this kind of resourcing to be done and i you know something like that it's just such a pleasure to teach with. And I don't know, maybe there are teachers out there who who probably don't get the experience of teaching with such beautiful resources in, in such a well, a clear, like our entire school is a really very thought through visual environment. You know, our classrooms are all very similar looking and we have um, a, a visual environment walk where SLT come around and you would think that would be quite intimidating but it's not because it helps you to think about things we all use working walls in a very similar way everything at our school how you know there's a design guide in terms of what fonts we use which again sounds really prescriptive and restricting but it's not especially if you're someone who appreciates the visual as I think I do um, it's quite freeing and it's I love it. It's one of my favourite things about my school is this whole this whole visual culture that we have. So yes, when we are um, talking about uh, the amazing visual uh, intelligence that's gone into producing these high quality materials, mm. uh, do I also take it that there was an historian working uh, to produce those materials? How did that happen? Yeah, absolutely. So our head of history uh, or our history curriculum lead is is 
um, historian with a history background. And actually, in addition to that, they're constantly being developed as well. So they um, have membership to the Historical Association and they read uh, the information. And when the HA had their um, conference recently, she sent around an email with lots of information about talks that we might want to watch, which is where I ended up watching this Christine Council talk that I'll talk about when we talk about RE. Um, so it's not just a case of like, oh, well, if you happen to have someone with a history degree, then that's great. You can plan history internally. And if you don't, well, good luck. It, it's a, a staffing thing in the first place of thinking about how you're creating a staff, you know, with a range of expertise. But B, I think also it's about developing the staff that you already have. Um, not every school is going to have an expert in every subject area. And then you might want to think about where you can go externally for that expertise. Uh, or you might want to think about how you can develop someone over a, a number of years to show that expertise through their planning. It's, a, it's the long view, really, as to how we gain that expertise in primary. Oh. Um, exactly. And also uh, making the case that uh, there would be shared pools, uh, whether they're in a trial or not, that actually um, across three or four primary schools, you'll need to have range of expertise and, and uh, then sharing that across those four schools to arrive at a similar outcome um and so just to wrap this bit up i couldn't agree more with this last uh bullet ad hoc arbitrary planning is the enemy of a coherent curriculum so a few of your thoughts on that then aj yes i'll have to be judicious here i think this stems from uh having joined a number of sort of primary facebook groups and the first thing i want to say is that that this is no reflection on the teachers who are in these groups at all because they are they are working hard and they are doing the absolute best they can for children but i think it is a, a reflection on leadership sort of it's been a bit of a shock to me to see how arbitrary some primary planning is i think because especially because i've come to a school where it's not arbitrary at all it's completely thought through is that perhaps too generous it's as thought through as it could possibly be um that to see people sort of looking for resources a couple of days before planning something a couple of days before teaching something or looking for resources on very vague topics or topics that aren't even really tangentially related to the national curriculum or don't seem to have a great deal of academic value or i don't know i feel a bit like i'm treading around on eggshells here but that doesn't that's not what coherent planning is and it sort of made me just want to i don't know i have this tendency to want to fix things and i thought well you could do this and you could do that and you could do this but again it's it's a much more long-term thing and i think it'd be interesting to think about it from a policy point of view because that's a whole conversation in itself is how education policy has changed things have those reforms made more of an impact in secondary than primary i'm not sure but it also i thought also about well, one day, you know, I hope to be a leader myself in a school. And there's a there's a movie with John Cleese, Clockwork, it's called. It's very funny. But he plays this sort of ainly retentive head teacher. And in his office, it's always been my dream office in the sort of 1960s modernist school. He has this whole board behind him with the, the entire school timetable on printed out sheets of computer paper. And they have little lights at the top and little flags. And, and I just thought, well, if that was me, I'd love to have my entire school curriculum like that i'd love to be able to stand back and see the coherence and to see what it what it looks like i mean maybe that's a sense of megalomania and 
and and a desire to control things but I mean wouldn't you if you were if you were in charge of curriculum in an entire primary school I'd want to be able to see at a glance where we pick up science in nursery and where we leave science in year six and what that journey is but across yeah I don't know coherence I don't, there's, there's I, I don't think that's been megalomaniac in the least um this is a bit like a you know an architect you know, only wanting to look at the plans for the basement or the loos or whatever without having a holistic picture. So I think it's uh, realistic and ambitious and actually quite a joyful um, ambition. And and to echo what you said, you know, this is never a blame game. And I, I know you know you were very clear um, about that as well. It's something is wrong within um, the processes within the sector that just need to be sharpened up. Um, interestingly, in the implementation bit of the latest inspection framework in the quality of education judgment, um, it talks about teachers having good subject knowledge. Then it goes on to say that where teachers have not got good subject knowledge, leaders have put in place um, appropriate support. And this applies in secondary, but it's much more of an issue in primary. And so I think, you know, what we're teasing out here is actually how we get to the development of proper subject knowledge over time. So we move away from what I call um, the TIA culture, thanks in advance. You know, it's, it's not fair on teachers and it's not fair on children. And so just some more rigorous thinking around that, I think, would be a good thing. But thank you very much for your thoughts on that. And in the next session, we're going to be having... I think about uh, in a bit more detail about primary religious education. So thanks very much indeed, AJ. If you enjoyed this podcast, there are over 300 films and resources on the Myatt & Co. website. Just go to www.myattandco.com.